Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're launching our next big series, classic films celebrating the great works of Tolling Bells. There's no doubt that we nailed it. Sat Matt tie-in. On our Saturday matinee show this week. I feel like we (laughs) hadn't seen the movie yet. Neither of us had read this particular bit of Hemingway. And we were just reading the tea leaves. And one of our great series picks for Saturday matinee show this week is Movies with Tolling Bells in them. And we crushed it. Having seen the movie... I can't wait to see what kind of films you come up with. <laughs> it's going to be fun. It's, it's going to be fun. It is delightful. This is, of course, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls. We're continuing our Ingrid Bergman series. This is the second in our series. She's fantastic. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about where this film uh, fits in, in our series? Any particular context we need to pay attention to before we start talking specifically about the movie? It's, uh, well, again, the films selected were ones that were voted on by our Patreon supporters. So this is one that our Patreon supporters um, wanted to hear us talk about. So they must have had some fascination with it. My hunch is they recognize the name. <laughs> <laughs> that's your that's, hunch, huh? <laughs> that's my guess. Oh, I've heard of that before. I might have even read that back in high school or college. That seems like a movie I should have seen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then I have to ask you of this 1943 entry uh, from director Sam Wood uh, and a screenplay by Dudley Nichols. Please tell me, Andy, how did For Whom the Bell Tolls hit you? So this was an interesting one. I have only read uh, The Old Man and the Sea. That's the only Hemingway work I've read. And so I really wasn't sure what to expect walking into this one. The only things that I knew is that it was during the Spanish Civil War and that it was nearly three hours long. So in my head, the film became a war epic. And so as I was watching it, I really, you know, my brain was like, they're spending an awful lot of time in this cave. And we're getting a lot of of just kind of hanging out and romancing going on between Gary Cooper's character, Robert Jordan, and Ingrid Bergman's character, Maria. And it was, it really took me about half the film to, to, for my brain to click in and go, you know what? It's not the film that I thought it was going to be. This is really kind of a war drama. And it's really about these characters as they're dealing with this period when uh, Robert Jordan, who is um, our one American, um, who's, in this war, he's trying, he's kind of a demolitions expert. And so he's supposed to blow up a bridge. And this is just kind of a, a four-day period leading up to the demolition of this bridge. And that's really what it is. So it's really kind of a small story in the scope of this much larger war. I think that once I got that, kind of wrapped my brain around that, I had an easier time with the film. I, I still struggled with it. I don't, I have like I, like I said, I haven't read the book but I felt like when I read The Old Man in the Sea, the way that Hemingway writes, it, there's a lot of poetry to the way that he writes. And I feel like this book probably had a lot of beautiful poetry just kind of describing these scenes and, and really giving me a sense of what it is. Because I feel like the conversations that people were having, 
had probably a lot of of um, messages and, and themes and everything that really kind of would give a lot to the story so that when we had these these moments of conversation between whether it's Robert and Maria or or Pilar and Robert or uh, or Pablo and Robert or Pablo and whoever it was I feel like there uh, like I would have gotten a little bit more out of it had I read the book or had uh, this been just a, a little stronger of an adaptation. I think it's an interesting work. I, I think there's an interesting story going on here, uh, but I don't feel like the themes necessarily came out quite as much as I wanted them to. Um, but uh, but I mean, there's, there is some really interesting stuff going on in here. Well, I, I think you're right about the adaptation part, and I think that's important because I, I am also not a Hemingway scholar, but I've, I've read a couple of the, the works, and I know a bit about his life, and I know in particular how he is, you know, remembered, right? I know he's remembered as a misogynist, and, a, and uh, he's, he's a troublesome guy um, in, in a lot of ways, um, and I, I think that our character Robert Jordan here, played by Gary Cooper, is, you know, that's our, our sort of manifest character, our Hemingway manifest character. And he's a soft around the edges kind of a guy. Uh, and I, I, I'm more interested to read the book now to see how the character is uh, portrayed. I, uh, I've read A Farewell to Arms and my, understanding is in terms of the book that that while this is for whom the bell tolls is a better example of kind of his early writing um that the better war story is is uh you know farewell to arms after seeing the movie i can picture that i found the the story itself kind of a snooze and you know my my first note was wow three hours it felt like six like it just took me a long time to feel like I was getting out of the cave there were some some real highlights uh, and some characters that I liked um, and and there were things about our central series protagonist Ingrid Bergman that I I enjoyed but overall I I struggled I felt like she was a character that didn't have a lot of agency to her uh, that the the romancing was a little bit um, I, I don't know, it's a, a little bit sappy. And all of the characters in the rebellion uh, were all kind of lampoons of a very serious, you know, war. Uh, it, you know, they were all sort of goofy, smiley, uh, you know, kind of laughable characters from time to time. And I felt like it wasn't, I wasn't as a result able to take the story as seriously as I'm pretty sure Hemingway would have wanted me to take. He did not write a comedy. Uh, and and so I, I struggled with, with this film in that regard. I, I don't know if I'd I agree just at the comedy point. I, I would say that each of the characters were caricatures, though. Yeah, they, yeah, because, that's fair. I mean, there was like the gypsy was kind of treated like kind of this comedic gypsy character. But right. there were some other uh, of the kind of the people in the rebellion with them up in the cave who... I mean, we're really just one note caricatures, you know, yes. like there, there are a couple of them were like really angry at Pablo and I can't remember which one, but was always ready to kill Pablo. And, mm -hmm. and, but that was it. Like that was his one note. And so that was, I, I agree. And, and I, it's interesting because reading about the book, the character, one of the characters that they make, uh, or at least it seems like Hemingway made a much bigger deal out of is the character of uh, Anselmo, who is the the older man who brings Robert to this cave. He's the, mm -hmm. the one who leads him, and he's with him through the whole mission. He's the one who ends up getting crushed by the, the bridge uh, pieces at the end of the film. Right. Um, his character is like, it sounds like the story is kind of told through his perspective uh, as much as uh, Robert's perspective. Uh, and um, it, it just kind of, well, it, it just seems like he's a much bigger part of it. And I don't know how that, how that plays out, but it's interesting to me that, that uh, I mean, and I don't know if the, the element of Maria was just brought in um stronger because they were trying to kind of find a um, kind of the Hollywoodized version of it. But it sounds like Hemingway was very involved in this story. So I, I feel like this probably is what Hemingway really wanted it to seem like on the screen. 
It's so puzzling to me. That is just puzzling to me because it's a movie that, and maybe it's just the, the fact that it's a dated movie. It's a classic that, uh, you know, that we need to see, I, I guess, as part of the catalog, but it feels like I've seen it. And this was, this was a movie that didn't know what it wanted to be. Uh, it, I found I was not. Uh, I, I thought the relationship between Robert Jordan and Maria uh, was, I don't, I don't know. I guess I'm supposed to feel attracted to these people being attracted to one another, but he was just too old and she was too young and it ended up feeling like one of those gross wartime romances um, that everyone ends up regretting in the end. And maybe because of the date of the, the when this movie took place, uh, maybe we had yet uh, to come to the period of regrets culturally. But this was just a uh, it was just not something that I found myself ever attracted to. And as long as that's missing, it's really hard to get into one of the central tenets, the tent poles of this movie, which is the love story. Um, I mostly felt like she was letting herself, because of naivety and, and immaturity, being sort of taken advantage of uh, and getting wrapped up into the storm of, of war. And I didn't find it uh, an affinity to that. I don't know if I would um, argue that it's naivete and, and immaturity so much as, I mean, she's been seriously broken. I mean, really yeah. broken. Like her story, like the the tales that we hear oh, about what happened her to her parents and the, yeah. and, uh, and the rape and everything. Uh, I mean, as much as the film could do at the time um, talking about kind of rape. I mean, it was, it was pretty horrifying. And I, I do feel like there's an element of, of kind of that um, misplaced attraction because uh because she's broken now and she's not quite uh you know she's she's uh kind of been crushed to a point where she's falling for the the first kind soul that kind of has come through i think is how i kind of interpreted it um but i i think there's an i don't know i i think that you're right to a certain extent that some of it likely is the time when um the story was written in 1940, where it uh, took place in 1937. And uh, I think there was a little less uh, of a concern about a younger woman and an older man, because, you know, I, I just, I, I think it was just a, a part of the times. And so I just kind of went along with it. For me, though, the struggle wasn't so much the age issue, or at least I wouldn't have noticed the age issue as much if I bought into the relationship more. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, now I'm curious because because we had Gary Cooper here, who uh, we um, we've talked about on the show before, and I think that he's I think he's an interesting actor. I don't think he's necessarily a um, um, a great actor, uh, and I think it's it, some of it is just because he's. Well, it's funny because I love Kevin Costner and I love I love uh, that type of performer and I think that there's a certain <laughs> element of that 2 by 4 that you call Kevin Costner <laughs> that I find in in uh in Gary Cooper and I certainly feel that uh in this particular film he comes across more in that way where it, you know I am bugged more by his really understated performance that he has here. And so that made it more noticeable to me that there was this age difference. And what's really funny is Gary Cooper is two years younger than Humphrey Bogart. And this is my point exactly. Because it's just not written that well, we end up noticing that more. Whereas Casablanca, which came out just right before this, I didn't notice that difference between Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart. That's a really uh, interesting bit of commentary there. Humphrey Bogart uh, was born in 1899. Yep. So he's two years older than... So the difference is, you know, still it's like 13 years or something between the two. But you're right. We didn't notice. Uh, I didn't notice at all uh, that there was anything weird going on and, and should have. Yeah. I, I think it's just something that that in stories like this in that period of time yeah. is just one of those things that we end up you know having to dismiss. Playing, I think I heard at one point, didn't she say that she's like nineteen? Is that how yeah. old she was supposed to be? Yeah, yeah. All of your nineteen years. Uh, I will say though that there are uh, there are some characters in here that I really like. I the, my hero of the movie is actually Pilar, uh, played by Katina Pagino. 
I think she's fantastic apart from the horrific makeup that they have her wearing. I, I love that she is the gruff maternal figure that stands up to this puzzling idiot, you know, Pablo, and and that there's a challenge for power and that she, you know, she ultimately comes out victorious. And then we get to see the way her she wields her power and the way she uh, uses that sort of maternal uh, figure status uh, to to give him agency later in the film. I really enjoy that particular role. Roller coaster that we go on. I think that was a fun and and nicely written little cavalcade. Yeah, I I really enjoyed her. I think it's easy to see why she was uh, you know an awards favorite. She really stood out in this film as just kind of a, a you know a, a fun character who had a, a biting performance. And I think mm-hmm. there was a lot of interesting stuff here. And for some reason, we should say that it's okay that she was kind of one note, right? I mean, that one note was a a necessity in the film, and it made the film better, even though she didn't have a very wide range. No, it wasn't. I mean, there were, you know, she had her her moments where she's, uh, you know, hiding stuff from Robert about his palm and when Mm -hmm. she does the palm reading and stuff like that. But yeah, I think largely it is, it's a pretty straightforward performance. It's just, she's kind of this tough mountain lady, you know, which which I think is kind of a really fun character that uh, I don't feel like we see too often. Uh, at least these days, I, I found her to be uh, just a real interesting treat. When she was being cast for this film, uh, she actually said when uh, she was, ta- I can't remember who she was talking to, the casting director or, or might have been Sam Wood. She said, I come from generations of gorillas. Um, for hundreds of years, our blood has spilled for liberty. My grandfather, when only 14 years old, had a price on his head and fled to Crete. My grandmother learned her ABCs from a gorilla chieftain on a cave on that island. I know that Pilar. I know her well. I think that's really interesting. That's powerful, yeah. That's fantastic. And paired with uh, Pilar, I think it's also worth talking about Pablo, uh, her husband. Yeah. Did you did you ever get a read that it was her husband? N- no, not not even not until reading about the film afterward. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was it, like, it was oh, totally. I didn't know they were husband and wife. What an interesting pairing they are. And you know what? Um, I changed the way I looked at the the cave, but only after I had ex- I had spent this time with the film. You know, I think I yeah. kind of wish I'd had known that going in. Yeah, it was a good bit of information to have had, um, especially in a scene like where. Uh, we are getting a flashback told by her as we're seeing the great Pablo and how he was a great guerrilla leader and he led them to this victory, which was a really interesting flashback in the way it was told. But you get this sense of who Pablo is. And I found Pablo to be such an interesting character. The way that he um, could never really decide. He was so wishy-washy with his decisions about supporting the guerrillas. And then he he was afraid he was going to die. And so he was going to steal the horses and then he came back and then he you know was he saw uh this uh this plane attack el sordo and his men and so he he burns the uh the ignition box thing for the dynamite and just the back and forth that he has all the way up through the end where Mm -hmm. he kills these guys that he's with because he he promised you know i'm going to make sure there's enough horses for everybody and so he kills these three people he recruits just to make sure that there's uh, room it's such an interesting character. So many twists and turns. Um, I, I personally, uh, I enjoyed Pilar, but I found Pablo to be the one that has the most interesting um, character moments all throughout the film. And, you know, as you said, Pilar is a great character, but very one note. Pablo was all over the place. I loved him. I sort of felt like Pablo's one note was that he was completely unpredictable in the movie. Like every at every turn, whatever you think he's going to do, he's already done it, but the opposite. And, uh, and and so I I like that. At one point, I thought, okay, Pablo, narratively, man, I need you to settle down. Like we're into the we're after the intermission now, and I need to be grounded a little bit in who you are because at some point the surprises become exhausting. And this movie walks the line of you know having a character that is full of surprises and having a character that's just plump schizophrenic. And yeah, and, but but so I, I think it was that that's almost there. War. I loved it because it's like, this is the insanity of war. And and I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I totally bought into him. 
Yeah, I mean, I can see that. And I get the insanity of war part, but I'm also looking at just like in terms of the structure of this story, like that character can be a distraction. And who am I supposed to pay attention to uh, at at the end of the movie? Like, where is the principal surprise going to come from? Is it going to come from this insular character who's been a pain in the, pain in the neck for the last, you know, two and a half hours? Um I really, because his last surprise needs to be the biggest surprise and the best surprise. And I actually think the last one, uh, if I'm remembering right, because there were so many, was really good. Like, I like the fact that his last surprise was to was the punchline to a joke that started, you know, three hours ago. I told you I would get you the horses. Um, but there, there's a line and he was dangerously clo- clo- close to crossing it. That's all. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Interesting. Uh, who is was there anybody? There, there's this whole sort of building the team mentality in this movie, and I I found that kind of heartwarming uh, about uh, you know watching this movie. I didn't expect it, but when we get to meet all of the characters in the um, you know in the cave, it it felt very much like that construction of of the team for the caper. In this case, the caper is we're all going to rally behind and 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 do what we need to do to blow up this bridge to help this American explosives guide blow up the bridge. That's what our it's what we're going to. Do. And and that's what our attention is going to be focused upon. And here are all here's the wacky cast of characters that's going to be sitting around the table. And I liked that they started by introducing them. We we get to meet them as they're kind of talking about oh wine and food. And here are all the people who are here as they're sitting outside the cave. And then they have this wonderful sequence where they're talking about Pablo, and he becomes the foil and an excuse for us to have Pilar name them all in a vote and give every character that, even as one note as they are, as a team that has now been built for us, it has agency. They're, they all have this sort of democratic uh, um, uh, system within their little economy. And I thought that was was really cool. Did you have the same sense? I, I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, I thought it was fine. I, I mean, it works, but it's not something where, um, you know, because these characters just, I never felt like I got to know any of them really as much as I would have liked yeah. to. I just, you know, it was it was fine, but it's not like, oh, this is the demo guy and this is the guy who's going to, you know, lead the team on this. Like, I knew nothing about any of these guys except right. that one was a gypsy. And um, a couple of them didn't know how to read, and and but they all Robert... had names, and they all had. And what was cool about it is it gave us the opportunity to see growth in Robert. I'm reaching here, man. I was not a huge yeah. fan of this movie, but we get we get to see that nice growth in Robert when later he goes and does the rounds and gives everybody a chance to vote. And I think that's really that was satisfying. Yeah, for me, I mean, I guess I, I did like the moment where Robert was teaching uh, Anselmo. And uh, the uh, not Anselmo, he was teaching the the gypsy um, how to kind of uh, help him because he he's like, I need you to you know mark who you see, mm-hmm. and he's like, I don't know how to write, and and he's like, No, you're not going to, and he basically did this little chart, and I loved that little moment, and he the, what the gypsy says in this way I can write, and then his friend is like, It's an educated pencil. I was like, I really liked that sense of uh, seeing how you can still find use in these people, you know, when they may not have the skills that you need, but you can find ways to still adapt and make it work. And I, I thought that was a nice moment. So for me, I, I didn't get much out of the team themselves, but I did like moments like that. And I, I will say, uh, not necessarily specifically about this team, but just about kind of the overall team. Like we have El Sordo, who is the, the leader of this other band that they're using, they're helping um, uh, Robert and his team. El Sordo is supposed to be the one who's getting horses. And he and his men end up getting pinned on top of this uh, peak and uh, killed by a, a, a planes when they come by and drop bombs on them. They had a much better group. I liked kind of this this sense of that group, particularly this this young man who has had kind of joined them, and he was the one who actually had saved Maria from the train and carried her out. and And hearing them kind of talking about him and everything, I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. That was this nice little uh, moment that we had. And so, to that end, I felt like I got to know El Sordo's men a little better than Robert's men. 
Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Uh, what do you think about the other the other side? Like in the, this final act, we actually see the battle, and there's the big race to um, blow the bridge, and uh, and we do have this. I, I think this really interesting moment where who is it? Is it uh, Captain um, Gomez? marching up the uh up the hill he finally nobody will go with him because you know that he says they're all dead go up there and confirm it uh, and uh, who was the guy who was marching up the hill who kept saying god shoot me shoot me as he's coming up the hill and we finally wait and he uh he in fact is uh shot in a very dramatic waiting scene and i think it's uh, and he's shot with like a gatling gun uh that's mounted that's sort of resting on i think a dead horse uh i found that sequence one of the great sequences of kind of the the isolation of fighting and that's one of the things that i think hemingway uh does is he deeply personalizes the act of war and i think this is one of those examples of that when you see these guys who are looking at each other's eyes and these close-ups you know the back and forth with the close-ups before we actually pull the trigger and um uh, i found that scene really intense and and you know uh, disturbing in just the right way for this kind of a film at this period. That, from what I read about the book, like that element of using uh, this type of weaponry in a war was definitely something that Hemingway was really putting in these automatic weapons and how uh, kind of this this whole idea of what war had been kind of this, this, you know, combat. And it was kind of this, uh, I guess, as they would say, kind of a sportsmanlike competition and everything. It's totally destroyed. And this whole idea of this romantic version of war has really been destroyed by these automatic weapons and just the way that mankind has adapted to such violent and quick uh, quick destructive tools mm-hmm. and i mean yeah the whole idea of war is as romantic as is silly anyway but you know what i mean it's it's like this idea of war having been turned because that comes up quite a bit i mean this whole thing of these uh, automatic weapons pop up throughout and i did think it was kind of an interesting thing that like it was almost like at every turn it is people up against automatic weapon fire mm-hmm. and and you know how kind of you know, horrifying that idea can be. And so it's it's interesting. I mean, it's a really interesting aspect of the war that we had uh, pop up quite a number of times through this. Yeah, right. I mean, if it's not, you know, ground to ground automatic weapons and it's from the air, you know, and they introduced the right. planes, you already mentioned that. And then finally, the ultimate destruction when the entire sort of transportation mechanism is is blown out. Then we have this sort of automatic weapon dodgeball sequence at the end, right? This is the big escape where all of the members of the team have to get out, uh, get across this like canyon, this like gully and and some train tracks, I guess. And they take one at a time. They race their horses across there because at the one end of this gully is the they're the the uh, the army, and they are shooting with their automatic weapons and uh, their cannons and things. And uh, uh, that's that's how we ultimately end up uh, seeing how our friend Robert meets his end. Uh, what do you think about how? how they portray this ultimate sacrifice. Did that pull at the heartstrings? Well, it's interesting. I mean, you pretty much knew it was coming as soon as Pilar reads his palms and gets that look on her face. Like, I mean, you know, his lifeline is short and he's going to be dying soon. Mm-hmm. It's it's in his palm and she never reveals it. But you pretty much know that this is either the mission. He'll die trying to, you know, get the mission accomplished or he'll die uh, succeeding, but still die. And so I was just, I mean, I was just kind of waiting for it. I mean, it's all thematic to this, the title of this, uh, this film, For Whom the Bell Tolls. I mean, that whole, uh, you know, um, pull from the, the poem by, I'm going to forget, I forget his name right now, uh, John Donne. Right. Yeah. Um, No man is an island entire of itself. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Meaning, you know, any of these people, when they die uh, in their fight, you know, it's it's me too. We're all dying a little bit because it's part of kind of the human experience. And I think it's a really interesting theme about war to have kind of 
that Hemingway pulled to to kind of have a part of this story about this civil war and how it really is not just tearing um, these Spanish people apart, but really it's it's something that is affecting all of us. And I thought it was really interesting. And and I guess for that moment, for me with Robert uh, at the end when he's when they're all trying to get across and, and you know he gets shot and he's dying and he tells. Uh, Maria, you know, go on without me. We are still together. And by you going on, I'm going on. So in a way, it's almost like the opposite of for whom the bell tolls. It also, it's saying like, you know, because you're still alive, I will be alive with you. And so it's an interesting kind of spin on that. I liked that. I thought it actually worked for me. I didn't have kind of an emotional connection uh, when we hit the end of the film, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, what I do think is interesting is in the book, it actually ends uh, kind of a little bit before we find out, uh, you know, what happens. I mean, he he raises the uh, the gun up and he's hoping he's going to kill an enemy to save his comrades as they go. But the narrative, the story ends right before he gets to launch his ambush. So we never actually find out if he saves his friends or not. And I think that's a really interesting way for the book to end. I think it would have been really hard for a Hollywood movie to end that way. Um, I, I think that this ending is fine, I guess. In, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, I think it's fine. I found it uh, scripted strangely. And by that, I mean, he goes into this weird trance that you've already kind of described, like, go on, I'm with you. You live, I go on. But the it's not just a simple, like, one-liner. He goes into a bit of a fugue state and just keeps talking and saying the same things over and over, shuffling some words around in, in a bit of a puzzling way. And then we get a voiceover for the first time. Oh, yes, yes. Right? right? And that, I am surprised you didn't bring that up because I thought I, of anything I, I that would have been a thing for you. Yeah. I didn't like that voiceover. There we go. Yeah, I... And and that I I mean I I don't know the book again. I mean perhaps he is. They have him saying something that his character was thinking at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but it did feel very out of the blue for all of a sudden this character as he's getting ready to to you know he's trying to wake himself up and be ready so he can attack these um, these soldiers when they come around the the bend. Um, he, I don't know. It just it felt very out of place because we had never had voiceover in the entirety of the film. Uh, that's what I had a problem with. It felt yeah. really out of place. It was jarring, and I don't think it was earned. I think a lot of the way that I read this film is like, this film is from 1943. It's a different time. It's a different way of putting a film together. I felt like, you know, it doesn't work so much in today's frame of mind. But I think, I don't know, as I look at it, I'm like, you know, it's 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 a different type of filmmaking. It's not as well-versed in kind of cinema um, as a lot of stuff we get nowadays. Um, so, yeah, I have issues, but I, I guess I find myself a little more forgiving of it. Uh, what You want to talk a little bit about getting it made? Yeah, so so this is an interesting one because, I mean, you know, Hemingway was a really interesting writer. He was definitely a writer who appreciated a good adventure. I mean, he loved... He really just, I mean, he, he liked kind of this this thrill of life and everything. And, and he also loved going over to Spain and he loved going down to uh, to Cuba and he liked, you know, traveling and everything. Um, he loved going to Spain and seeing the bullfights, all that. He had a sense that there was going to be this civil war over there. And uh, sure enough, uh, and it started in 1936 and he actually became a foreign correspondent and uh, would go over there. Uh, I think he went over there four times over the course of the war as a foreign correspondent to write uh, news and get stories and stuff. Um, he also, at the time he was doing that, was also raising money to support the Republican government. Um, so he was very much you know, uh, on one of the sides mm-hmm. as he was this foreign correspondent. Um, so he kind of... In his time there, he found inspiration um, to kind of write this story. The characters, uh, especially the lead character, is very much kind of him in a way. Um, he kind of pulled a lot of it from himself. Uh, it's a little idealized, but it still is from him. And a lot of these other people that he he um, populated the story with, these gorillas, um, were kind of people that he kind of, uh, you know, they weren't direct comparisons, but they were, it was just kind of a sense of the people that he'd come in contact while he was over there. So now the book was published in 1940. 
Gary Cooper um, had read it and uh, loved it, and he brought it to Cecil B. DeMille. And um, DeMille loved it and told Paramount to buy it. And so Paramount did buy it, and it, it, buy it, and it was a record price that they paid for it at the time. It was $150,000 that they bought the rights to the book for. And so that was pretty huge. Um, DeMille, actually, he brought Hemingway in, and he and uh, Gary Cooper sat down. And this was the first time that these two came together, and they clicked. Hemingway and Cooper uh, just were like... Uh, like, you know, twins, practically, they got along so well. And what's interesting is that they ended up hanging out together. They were friends all the way up until their deaths. And they both died within like a couple months of each other in 1961. So they were um, just very close, which was really interesting. Um, now, the trick is, Gary Cooper was under contract with, uh, I think, MGM at the time, and couldn't get on this job. And uh, so that was a little bit of a problem, because Hemingway, at this point, being like practically best friends with Gary Cooper, um, uh, couldn't have him in his movie. Now, Hemingway wanted Ingrid, Ingrid Bergman to play uh, Maria, but she was bound to David O. Selznick. This is the, you know, the crazy studio yeah. system. All these actors are bound to different studios and stuff. And so what's interesting is this book was hugely popular. The American uh, population found out that this movie was happening. They started just writing letters, pouring in uh, by the thousands, um, saying Gary Cooper needs to be the lead. And um, there was a bunch of different options for the women that um, that people were throwing out. They said Olivia de Havilland, Joan Fontaine, uh, Paul Echodard. And there was this ballerina, Vera Zorina, who was um, another person that they were throwing out there. During all this, Cecil B. DeMille, he dropped out of the picture, and Sam Wood, who had been DeMille's assistant back in the silent era, uh, came on board to, to direct it. Now, uh, uh, Samuel Goldwyn, he ended up saying, you know what, you can, um, we'll loan out Gary Cooper for this. And for Maria, Paramount cast this ballerina, Vera Zorina, to be the lead. And so they started working on it. And she was like this, this, um, uh, you know, very much a ballerina, very much, you know, just kind of when they were shooting this. And we didn't say a lot of this was actually shot up in the mountains of the, I think, the Sierra Nevadas. And um, she was really reticent to do some of the work because she was afraid she was going to to uh, hurt herself and uh, and damage her legs. And so... Um, so while they were up in the Sierra Nevadas, uh, I mean they were and they were pretty high up uh, up there. They uh, they were shooting for a couple weeks with Vera Zarina, and Sam Wood was just like, you know what, she's never going to work, and was very frustrated. And so he screen tested Ingrid Bergman, and um, and they uh, they ended up uh, working a deal with uh, with. Uh, Selznick to get her on board. And so she came on board after um, two weeks and had, they had to reshoot all of uh, the Vera Zarina's footage. And uh, yeah, and then I guess you could say the rest is history. They uh, they uh, ended up getting this uh, cranked out through all that. But it was it was quite a little ride to get this thing off the ground. Did Vera Zarina end up doing other films? Why, yes, she did, actually. she. Uh, but again, it's more the types of films that she probably made made more sense in um, in roles for. I mean, it wasn't a ton of stuff uh, from 31 to 46, uh, but a lot of it was, you know, just kind of, you know, dance pictures or or films that weren't necessarily up in uh, the mountains. You know, I think <laughs> films that weren't in the mountains. Yes. Uh, that's another series. That is right. <laughs> right after the Bell's Tolling series. That's exactly what we're doing next. <laughs> yes, get ready. Uh, well, I, it's that's an interesting story, and I, I feel I'm glad that we ended up with uh, with our fair heroine Ingrid. Uh, she's she is always lovely to watch, and particularly lovely to watch being lovely. And I don't just mean that she's uh, attractive, but she has a way of conjuring up that look of like. I love you uh, better than so many. Like she just really, I, I believe she is deeply infatuated with with Robert Jordan in this movie. She and and they lay it on thick uh, with all these soft looks. 
Yeah, she she does that uh, quite well, and it's I mean it's a great contrast to Gary Cooper, who who doesn't do that quite as well. You know, he just kind of you know gives his gives his smile, and yeah. that's the Gary Cooper look that uh, that you get, and it's fine. But um, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I, I think that Ingrid Bergman does well at this part. We should. We should back up for a second and say this film takes place during the Spanish Civil War. Gary Cooper makes perfect sense to be there because he is the American who is there working. Um, uh, he's a he's a, uh, a a professor who is now over there helping uh, with uh, demolition because he's a demolitions expert. Right. But everybody else should be Spaniards and none of these actors are. And so we have a lot of awkward looking actors with uh, just some terrible makeup, trying to make them look like they have kind of Spanish heritage in one way or another. It's pretty rough. Ingrid Bergman, you know, she's not that bad as Maria. Her real short haircut, I guess is okay. Uh, She looks sometimes like she's just got a little bit of a tan. It's never quite consistent but i think on the whole i think she handles her character uh well particularly the darker stories that she has to tell uh to robert about her time with her parents and when she's getting raped and all that there are some pretty powerful moments really were you're right Uh, and i think of the you know to your point she is the least offensive right non-spaniard for me she's the easiest one to watch and not slap my forehead I, you know, I, I thought Akeem uh, Tamaroff as Pablo was actually pretty consistent. I thought he actually worked for me. Mm. I think the worst was Pilar, unfortunately, because I just felt yeah. like they they weren't uh, keeping good tabs on her makeup job. And sometimes she was just, I mean, I felt like she was wearing blackface. Like it just, yeah. there was so much stuff on her face. And I was like, boy, it just, it looks rough. And that that was a real problem because she she was like such a great character that was just heartbreaking when she would do something that I really liked and look at her and have her look so ridiculous. And likewise, Joseph Kalea, who, uh, I mean, Akeem Tamaroff and Joseph Kalea, we've talked about both of them before when they were uh, working together back in, um, uh, why did I just blank on the name of the film? Touch of Evil? A Touch of Evil, yeah. So they, I mean, I think the two of them are great actors. And, but man, Joseph Kalea ends up, when he's El Sordo, I mean, he's just got some, some, funky wigs and and uh, a nose piece that he's wearing and and white eyebrows uh, you know it's just yeah they really were it felt very theatrical i think that's the way i felt is it felt like a theater production of this story and they were just casting you know whoever was local because local close to the theater um as opposed to actually casting people who made sense as spaniards ray renahan Behind the camera. Andy, I, that is a name that is new to this show, I think. And and of films of this period where you have just uh, one cameraman who does 700 movies, it feels strange that we haven't seen his name cross our thing yet. Um, cross our thing ye- yet? What am I talking about? I don't <laughs> what know. What is your thing? That's an odd way to describe <laughs> it, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, Ray Renahan is, uh, I mean, he's a person who certainly has been in the industry for quite a while and certainly has been working on a variety of projects, um, for quite a while. Certainly works on projects that we've talked about. Oh yeah. Like, uh, like he was, uh, the Technicolor associate on Gone with the Wind, for example. Mm-hmm. So he certainly is somebody who has, you know, been around the block and worked on a lot of projects, but just somehow through all the projects that we've talked about, we have not come across another film that uh, Ray Renahan has actually shot. But what's interesting is he was considered one of the innovators of the three-strip Technicolor process. So I think that is a really interesting element um, about him. And to that end, I have to say... I am really disappointed that, and maybe it's just because the film is not as a popular film. I don't know, but if if he is really a person who is kind of involved very much in kind of the birth of the three strip Technicolor process, this print looked like garbage. Yeah. They need to invest some time and money and just get some some prints of this and find the different, uh, the three, you know, the three different strips 
and reprint this film. I mean, there were times where the three different images were just not lining up with each other and were wobbling and everything. I mean, it was a really, really ugly watch. And I felt so bad because I could tell like there were some beautiful colors that would pop out of this if we got a great print of it. So it was, it was kind of a frustrating watch for, to that end. Yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, and there wasn't anything that really jumped out at me uh, cinematographically uh, as being particularly revolutionary. Uh, you know, there was nothing in here that that just I felt like I noticed, you know, where it wasn't. That's weird. Um, kind of reaction, like it just it just felt like it was a, a little bit of a clumsy hoofing it up and down this this hillside. Um, there was one sequence that I wanted to call out that I I think just in terms of of the way it was edited and put together and and insofar as this wasn't a comedy, I found this to be a comedic moment, and I quite loved it. And it's Pilar doing a flashback where she's telling a story, and it cuts to different times as she's telling the story. And the people who are in the flashback, they start moving their mouths, and she is still telling the story, doing the voiceover in their mouths. And I loved that. It was super familiar to me because it's a trope that has been used now twice in quite recent memory in the Ant-Man movies. And I thought that was such a novel and wonderful gimmick for telling a flashback like that. Uh, and I really thought that Ant-Man was being, being original. Uh, so it was it was quite delightful to see it done here in the weirdest of places. And now I want a supercut of all of these kinds of sequences. <laughs> I would love to find more. I thought it was a really interesting and, you know, it was, it's funny because it hit a, at a point where we have, uh, there were some other uh, kind of conversational flashbacks where people were talking about stuff from the past. And when Pilar started talking, I'm like, oh, we're going to have another long conversation yeah, about something that happened. <laughs> And we really need to show, not tell. And then that's exactly when they cut away to kind of her flashback and, and the whole scene played out. And it was it was smart. It was clever. It was done really well. And it was horrifying also. And that's the thing I think that um, you lose in, in as you're kind of uh, spinning it in the kind of that fun Ant-Man style, which I think works really well here. But what is horrifying is the realities of what's happening and how Pablo is this is this great leader because of the awful things that they end up doing. Yeah, a heck of a job getting us to swallow the pill. Yeah, right. Editing by John F. Link and Sherman Todd. And uh, we need to talk about this roadshow cut. Right. This is the era when uh, these roadshows were a thing. The roadshow is basically a uh, a longer cut that that they would do, and then they would take it on the road and travel around the country with it. In this particular case, um, this movie was released in in the summer as a roadshow, and it started in New York, and they just kind of took it around the country, showing it in different places, and um, they, you know they kind of call it a, a super production. It was this huge hit; both critics and audiences loved it, and it because of the way that it was released and unfolded and garnered all this talk and everything, it became. Uh, the most profitable film of 1943. and uh, But what's interesting is what they do is then they take that cut, and in this particular case, it was 170 minutes, and they chop it down so that by the time they're done with the roadshow, they can release it theatrically, and it's not quite as long a cut. It's the sort of thing that, I mean, Tarantino just did it when he released The Hateful Eight. You know, there was a slightly different... I don't actually know if the cut was different, but at least we had the uh, intermission and the overture and all that sort of stuff if mm -hmm. you went and saw the actual Roadshow version of it. In this particular case, they cut those out, but they also cut another 36 minutes or so because, I mean, they brought it down to, I think it was 134 minutes. Unfortunately, the Roadshow version of it kind of was lost for a really long time. And uh, it was kind of uh, sad that that had happened. But in the late 90s, they found some prints and they actually restored it to about 168 minutes. It still is missing some footage. Um, the, uh, it was 134 minutes. Um, let's see, the 170-minute version did not count the intermission. So it was actually closer to 175 minutes. And so, uh, you know, they got it close, but they're still missing about seven minutes or so. And 
it was weird because you could actually kind of tell there were a couple cuts in here that just seemed like jarring from one scene to the next. And there's one cut notably toward the end. I think it's right after he sees that Anselmo has been killed. Uh, we have uh, Robert as he starts kind of running off and it cuts and the music actually chops from one shot to the next. You can tell that there was, had been something else there and it's frustrating. And this is just the sort of, you know, tragic things that happen in film history over time. And I just don't know if uh, if it'll ever if they'll ever find the remaining pieces. But uh, I'm always for a film restoration. And this film is, you know, it's an interesting one. I wouldn't say it's a classic, but it's an interesting one. And it's certainly one that I think would be worth restoring. Yeah, I mean, it, at least it deserves to have a final rest in its final complete form. And that's the yes. that's the thing that's that's sad. How did it do at, at, in award season? This was a popular one. I mean, we talked a little bit about this last week when we were talking about Casablanca because they uh, because of that weirdness with Casablanca's release in 1942 um, in a couple places, but then the, you know the big release in 1943. The you know whatever reason the Academy decided that they would call it a 1943 film, and it ended up against this film at the award ceremonies. This film um, did have four wins and nine other nominations at the oscars it got nine nominations which was great um best picture it lost to casablanca as we were just alluding to best actor gary cooper uh that's the uh i guess we'll call that the kevin costner award that (laughs) he got a nomination for this um he lost to paul lucas for watch on the rhine just like humphrey bogart did Uh, best actress ingrid bergman she lost to jennifer jones for the song of bernadette we talked about that last week as well Oh, we have uh, Best Supporting Actor, Akeem Tamaroff. He lost to Charles Coburn for The More the Merrier, as did Claude Rains uh, for Casablanca, as we talked about last week. Uh, we already mentioned uh, Katina Pachino won Best Supporting Actress for her role as Pilar here in this film. So that's nice to see. That's uh, the one Oscar win that this film did get. Best Color Cinematography lost to Phantom of the Opera, as did Best Art Direction Interior Decoration. Best Film Editing lost to Air Force. And uh, Best Music Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture lost to The Song of Bernadette. This one, um, again, the weirdness, uh, the Golden Globes. This one was eligible for for the Golden Globes. This was the Golden Globes' first year. Uh, Casablanca was not because they did see that as a 1942 film. And at the Golden Globes, Akeem Tamaroff and Katina Pashinu both won for their supporting awards. And uh, so, yeah, it's nice that those two were getting recognized. And yet, how did it do in the box office? You know, something that uh, I always struggle with with these older films is gauging the costs and the grosses of them. Uh, it's You know, finances just weren't reported the way that they are now. Um, with that, I'm going to uh, give you what I have found. For this massive adaptation, the studio forked out $3 million to director Sam Wood, which is about $41.7 million in today's dollars. As I already said, the movie was released as a roadshow starting in New York City on July 14th, 1943, before rolling across the country. For the theatrical release, um, it did well for itself. In, in both cases, it did really well for itself. And as I said, it became the top grossing film from the year. And here's where it gets a little tricky. While I did find some information about the grosses, I also found this note, which I think it emphasizes pretty well my point about how hard it really is to find this information and really ensure that what we're actually comparing are apples to apples. Um, This is what it says. Box office numbers were reported at the time as a percentage compared to, quote, normal business at each theater. For example, For Whom the Bell Tolls performed at an extraordinary 254%. This is why exact dollar grosses for the period are unreliable at best. So I have to take that into account. Um, I have to at least put it out there. I didn't actually take it into account at all when I put these numbers together, but... (laughs) It's out there. So, all right. Um, so here's what I found: the movie went on to earn 17.8 million at the box office, which is about 452.8 million in today's dollars. That's North America. I couldn't find anything for the rest of the world. But assuming that's all there is, the movie did end up with an adjusted profit per finish minute of 2.4 million. And all told, I mean, that's a really strong uh, return for this Hemingway adaptation. Truly, yeah. If you can trust them. So. 
If you can trust it, right. Assuming right. it's all real. I'm glad we watched this movie. I feel like this is one that, that it. I'm glad to be able to check it off the list. It is not my, uh, my favorite of the era, for sure. I struggled with its length. I feel like uh, it it weighs itself down early on and it makes the the you know most interesting piece of the movie the third act uh for me it 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 feels like it takes way too long to get there and i've just about run out of steam so um yeah i yeah i would agree with that i feel like um i want to read the book now yeah you know like that's that's what i took away from this i think it's an interesting film i enjoyed elements of it but what i i found like even just reading about the book and how they talked about how important in the book this whole idea was of uh you know getting yourself into a situation where you have to kill yourself or you have to kill somebody mm-hmm. you love because um because you're going to be captured and tortured and all this stuff uh, there are conversations in the film but i i don't know i just ended up feeling like a lot of the conversations um really kind of were about kind of this relationship drama between robert and and maria and i wanted to see um, just a little bit more about the actual mission and everything. So I, I think it was really interesting, but I have a feeling I will take away more from the book than I did from the film. So the takeaway that we both have here is, parents, if you want your kids to read Hemingway, make them watch the movie first. <laughs> Can we make that axiomatic somehow? I feel like that's a, an important takeaway here. I, I will say, Pete, I was reading this about the book. This book was written in a style, you know how Spanish, I, I don't know if you know this, because I don't know, uh, you studied French, and I don't know if French does this, where in Spanish, there are two versions of you. There's yes. two, and there's usted, yes. right? Uh, one is a little more formal. And what Hemingway did as he wrote this, to try to kind of capture that sense of the Spanish language, <laughs> he wrote he wrote it kind of in this funky narrative style that some people really didn't like at all. It was, uh, he did it, it, it was kind of this prose where he did a lot of thou and thee. Yeah, um, and like what, was what more passes of a for thing. you today, like, right? Instead of yeah, how's it going, right. something like yeah, that. Yeah, he was, <laughs> Exactly. Like he was, yeah, just this funky way to write because he was trying to create this world where it felt like it had been translated from Spanish or something. And uh, I think um, that's one thing that does potentially put me off (laughs) reading it because I'm like, it sounds like it's going to be a chore (laughs) to get through it. I'm just, I will say, I am glad they did not feel the need to go down that road in the making of this film. Amen. Let's rank it. <laughs> Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've ever talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap on the word flickchart, it should take you directly to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up to ours. First up, we have For Whom the Bell Tolls versus Rocky 3. I'm going to go with Rocky, Rocky 3. For Whom the Bell Tolls or A Star is Born 1976. For Whom the Bell Tolls. For whom the bell tolls. For whom the bell tolls are labyrinth. I will take labyrinth, please. Oh, this is this is a rock and a hard place right here, Andy. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna pick labyrinth, but I'm gonna pretend that that stupid song isn't in it. For whom the bell tolls or Lupin the Third, the Castle of Cagliostro. I will take Lupin. Oh, oh definitely Lupin. For whom the bell tolls are compulsion. Oh, I will 100 percent take compulsion. I will too. For whom the bell tolls, or the Book of Eli? Haven't seen that pop up in quite a while. I'm going to take the Book of Eli. Uh, yes, I think I will too. For whom the bell tolls, or Atlantic City? I'll take Atlantic City. Atlantic City. For whom the bell tolls, or La Femme Nikita? La Femme I'll Nikita. Take Nikita. Yeah. For whom the bell tolls, or our recent favorite Chinese puzzle? Uh, take for whom the bell tolls. Yeah, I'll take. For, oh, wow. Well, that puts For Whom the Bell Tolls at 302 on our chart. 302 out of 403. One spot above Chinese Puzzle. That is about a 25% on our flick chart. That was interesting because they were. it, it felt like that was a very decisive ranking. Would you agree? In the sense that uh, like there wasn't we anything never that we, argued? Yeah, we didn't argue. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to look at it. That It was very clear to me every movie that you mentioned that where I would put this like i didn't have much of yes. a decision you agree right i would I, agree i had the same thing happen on my own list and this movie did not perform as well at 
all. Hmm, interesting. And so we'll leave that hanging right there as I ask you, how did it go for you? Well, apparently better than it did for you. Uh, it landed at 2321 out of 4130 on my chart, which is about a 44%. Okay. So you know that thing where you have a movie, sometimes you rank a movie and then it shows up and it says how you should rate it elsewhere on Flickchart and it shows five stars and all the stars are white and you think five stars? In fact, that there is no yellow in your stars, that means that it's a zero star. And that's where this ended up on my list. Somehow this ended up at 1,046 out of 1,083. That is a 3%, 3%. And uh, it should be a zero star over uh, using the algorithm at letterbox.com slash the next reel. That feels not accurate. Yeah, it's pretty low. You don't seem as surprised as I was about that. I, I it seemed like you're really Pete, taking I'm that I'm never in surprised stride. with your rankings. You you <laughs> you you made a 2001 uh, a torturous experience uh, by putting it so low. So I I've given up care. on trying to guess where you're going to rank things. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if this was your new number one. I'm just saying that this one came out at uh, my the very first pairing that I had to deal with was this movie and Under the Cherry Moon, and you know how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for me, I, this is a movie that I it it felt pretty middle of the road for me. I mean, this is right in that two two and a half star uh, area for me, and I I don't honestly know if it merits a heart yet. I'm kind of waiting to be swayed. Where'd you go? I am at two and a half. I, um, you know, I think that 44% is pretty close to the 50, which is where I uh, feel that it's landing. So two and a half. Um, and I'm not giving it a heart. I don't know if it's something I'm going to run out and watch again anytime soon. Um, I might change my tune after reading the book. And if I find myself connecting to it, I may revisit it then and see if I, I do find more of a connection. Clearly, Audiences in 1943 really found a strong connection to this film and really found that it was a very faithful adaptation. I mean, Hemingway was right there involved in this, picking the cast and and getting the team involved. And he seemed like he was right there, like this is the film he probably wanted to tell. So, I mean, he and Gary Cooper were like best buds. So I, I think that... I have to look at this film and saying this is really something that represents a, a cinematic version that Hemingway would be very proud of. And uh, but still to that end, I'm like, I find a hard time really connecting to it now. And I just don't know if that's because I haven't read it or what. But uh, I don't know. Well, I I think that's that's very telling. The problem that I have with it, at least in the context of the series that we're doing right now, is that we already have a significantly better uh, Ingrid Bergman movie that I would rather watch any time this movie comes up as an option. So I have a hard time imagining I'm ever going to go back to For Whom the Bell Tolls when I have movies like this or or some of the movies that we have coming up. Yeah. So what what are you ranking it then? Is that you said two oh, or two I'm and gonna, a half? No, you know what? I told you I was going to be swayed, and Andy, I wasn't lying. I want to do exactly what you do with this movie. I just want to <laughs> do what you do. Also, what are you wearing right now? Because I'm going to go get. I want to put it on. I'm wearing a bunny suit. Let's do two and a half stars. No heart with a bunny. Okay, mm -hmm. that's where we landed mm -hmm. then. I think you you have to say we rocked this initial entry into our bells tolling series. And now we are moving on to uh, to something far more diabolical. Oh, yes, we are. I am very much looking forward to uh, jumping into this next film We uh, and revisiting this one. This is one that I watched in uh, my women in film class back in college and am very much looking forward to revisiting Gaslight, directed by George Cukor from 1944. Uh, this is, yet again, we are establishing an unintentional series of George Cukor movies. I'm very excited about this. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, check out our other show, The Marvel Movie Minute. We're talking about the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time, starting with 2008's Iron Man. Get on the train, everybody. We're almost finished with Iron Man. But if you start today and you don't stop listening... For about three months, you'll get caught up and you'll be able to catch up with this when we start the Hulk next year. And 
And you might even hear some hiatus episodes. Just maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, you can support that show and all of our shows over on thenextreel.com slash Patreon, where you can get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always do it. <laughs> uh, we were split. This was a split decision. We were both two and a half stars. So as as I guess we're one to do, we split the Amazon reviews. Uh-huh. I went high. You went high. I went low. I always go low. I really always go low. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to, I want to, I want to start because this one is, well, I don't know. I just think it's telling based on our conversation. Do you mind? Go for it. All right. Uh, Richard says, as of 2015, that this film is out of date in every sense of the word. Ghastly. Unlike so many other Hemingway stories on film, this one takes almost half an hour to show an introduction to the mountains of Spain that could have been done better in five or ten minutes at the most. It destroys the interest in going any further, and that destroys the entire purpose of having or watching it. Oh, my. Destroys, Andy. It's a big word. Used twice. <laughs> What's yours? Well, I've got a five-star by Tommy Tucker. Ooh, Tommy. So well, that's one thing I love about Tommy. And uh, Tommy says, uh, five stars, Hemingway, Cooper, and Ingrid. What a cast for whom the, for, for whom the bell tolls. I am a Hemingway nut and have seen this film when just a button but now in my 80s, have renewed my interest in the hem. This is the other reason that I love this review, Tommy, because you're in your 80s and you called him the hem. (laughs) And you also said when you were just a button. Like, I love everything about this review. (laughs) The story takes place during the Spanish Civil War, one in which Hemingway lived apart. The interaction between Ingles and the Nacionales is superb and purely great character acting by all. I will watch and rewatch this film to see things I missed the last time. Ugh, the hem really did it. He really <laughs> pulled one out for the button. <laughs> the hem and the button. Andy, <laughs> this is the next great uh old old man robot pairing feature, buddy feature. This is what we need, the hem and the button. Somebody's the gonna okay, button. somebody's intern notes. Here's the thing. Treatment. Page one. We open on the hem, an animatronic robot brought to life due to a fateful accident of lightning. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Amazon. (laughs) 